As we head into the swimming season, many of us are going to be flocking to the beach for a bit of sun, sand, and fun. In addition to that, you'll be making plenty of memories, but there are a few things to be aware of when it comes to keeping yourself safe when you head to the beach. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of rip currents. Noah has launched a new initiative called Wave Safe, aimed at reshaping the conversation around rip currents and ocean safety. Joining us today is Bruckner Chase, an ocean safety expert and host of this new program called Wave Safe. Bruckner, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's great to be here, Marshall. Thanks for having me. And as, as I shared with you before we came on the air, uh, you are in a new generation of Weather Geeks podcast that we're prototyping using video. So I want to thank you for being one of our guinea pigs, if you will, <laughs> for this format. And bear with us as we, as we figure it out, because again, we're, we're evolving from an audio-only podcast to a video-only podcast. Now, no matter how we're evolving, I have to start off with a question that I ask every single Weather Geeks guest. But I'm going to modify it some. I usually ask, how did you become a Weather Geek? But in this case, I'm going to ask, how did you become an ocean geek? That's a great question. And I will say, as a weather geek, I have a weather station up on my roof that is broadcasting to weather underground. So I, I would. So you are a weather, weather geek. geek as well. I would, I would be a weather geek too, but I'm often looking at the weather in relation to what's it going to do to the ocean and my experience there. And I, I had grown up in, in Tennessee, you know, in the South, where so many of us in this kind of community seem to be from. And I was always, I remember going to, to Florida and the, the Gulf Coast as a kid and being really kind of afraid of the ocean and, and, you know, sharks and big stuff that you couldn't see. But several years ago, I moved to Santa Cruz, California and fell in with the wrong group of people <laughs> who took me out swimming in Monterey Bay and I had had a, a, a lifetime of pursuing endurance athletics. And then something about looking out at Monterey Bay the first time and just thinking, this is the biggest water I've ever seen. And I'd heard the stories. It's part of the Red Triangle where they research sharks. It's also some of the best surfing in the world. The water's always cold. It's gray. And it's just big. And I remember being out there for the first time after overcoming the fear of leaving the beach and just feeling like there's something to this. Like it's just the 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 vastness of it, the the fact that it just felt like home. And I was like, I just I just want to explore this. I mean, something that I had always just kept my feet in the sand for the most part. And then now that I'm out there going, wow, this this is not what I expected it to be, and I wonder what else I can find out while I'm here. You know, that's a really interesting story, and I, I want to make sure our listeners and viewers understand some of your background. So I, I have a few facts that have been provided. I just want to read them off so that I can uh, get them correctly. Bruckner Chase is an internationally recognized ocean advocate and professional waterman whose athletic career spans the world in the most challenging environments and adventures. As he just mentioned, he's the founder and president of the nonprofit Bruckner Chase Ocean Positive Incorporated, 
uh, which team uh, designs, develops, and implements innovative and inspiring ocean adventures and programs that connect individuals. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about some of his background as we go along in the podcast, but one of the things we're here to talk about today is rip currents and ocean safety. And I have to admit, I'm that parent that when my kids went to the beach in recent years, they're older now, they're teens, one's in college. I was probably hyper obsessed with my concern about rip currents. I, I, I to, to, to their detriment to some degree because I just wouldn't let them go too far out and when they wanted to go out and enjoy it. So mm -hmm. first of all, let's start with a basic understanding and definition of what rip currents are. <clears throat> well, I think we should – we'll talk a little bit about rip currents, but one of the things that we did with the Wave Safe series is really kind of look at – all the different hazards beyond just rip currents. And that's that's really, really important. There was a tragic drowning uh, a couple of weeks ago down in Florida. Uh, I did the morning show on the Weather Channel on Saturday talking about that, how that was a, a strong current, but it was actually a tidal-generated current. So it was a tidal-generating current, not a rip current. Not a rip current, yes. So by definition, a rip current is a relatively narrow kind of river of water or, or strip of water that's flowing from the beach out towards the ocean. It can be fluid in where it, it materializes. The bathymetry or the shape of the bottom really kind of defines where it's going to materialize. And usually it's um, caused or strengthened by waves or wind pushing the water up onto the beach or into a groin or kind of a jetty and then forcing that water to find an easy way out. So if there is a, a sandbar or a gap between the sandbars and you've got even one to three foot surf and wind kind of driving that water up, it's going to find the path of least resistance to get back out, to flow back out. So that kind of narrow kind of rip current is something you'll see on a lot of the, the flatter sand beaches, like many people in the South might be used to along the Gulf Coast or in the mid-Atlantic. But some of those dangers and those currents can be very different if you go to somewhere that I spend a lot of time, American Samoa or the Pacific Northwest, or if you're in an area with barrier islands like you have in the mid-Atlantic and in some parts of Florida, where you might have a large body of inland water that's flowing out through a gap between the islands. So rip currents are part of it, uh, and they're very localized, and they usually peter out pretty close to the shore. But there are a lot of other dangers that are geographically specific that we also want to look at. Well, let's talk about flight. some of them. Let's, yeah. let's just dive into them, yeah. pun intended. Let's dive in. And I think I do a lot of work with Surf Life Saving Australia. Um, and Surf Life Saving Australia is kind of the gold standard of collecting information about what's going on on their beaches. And they have a nationally standardized program of guarding the beaches, 312 surf lifesaving clubs throughout the country, as well as professional guards on the beaches. Surf Lifesaving Australia just released their preliminary report for 2022-2023, and they had uh, of the drowning deaths, and this is fatal drownings, because not all drownings are fatal, and of the fatal drownings, only 43% were attributed to a rip current in Coastal Australia's initial report for the 2022-2023 season. The same holds true 
uh, in the US. USLA is probably not as sophisticated in how they capture and analyze data as Surf Life Saving Australia is, mostly because of resources and funding and the way they can go about it. But even still, <clears throat> their uh, reports over roughly a 15, 20 year average are showing that only about 50% of fatalities are rip current related. So there's a large portion of people that are, that are drowning uh, fatal drownings and other things. And so when we looked at Wave Safe, I took the time, the film series took almost three years to develop. And I spent a lot of time on the phone with the weather forecasting offices from various regions of the country. Because taking a social science informed approach to coastal safety is we need what we're showing people to resonate with them, for them to identify with it which really means that we can't just film all the safety stuff at a beach on the Outer Banks and think that it's going to resonate with someone from the Pacific Northwest or Southern California or someone from, from the middle of the U.S. that may visit a beach that looks completely different from that. And in talking to the weather forecasting office communicators, the National Weather Service team, in different parts of the country, they were really focusing on communicating different things to the public. In the Pacific Northwest, <clears throat> you've got large, long-period waves, and you've got often pocket beaches surrounded by cliffs, and you've got large debris fields of logs and trees that are washed up on the beach. And in the Pacific Northwest, they refer to something as a sneaker wave, which is a wave that comes much further up the beach than maybe previous waves in the set. Sometimes it's magnified by the way the waves interact. And so what happens is someone might be going down to the beach in the Pacific Northwest, having no intention of getting in the water because the water's 52 degrees, yet they're on a small beach, the water comes up really fast, and all of a sudden they're being pulled out into the water. So when you talk about what happens to the human body when it's dropped into 52 or 53 degree water, you've got a very short window of time to kind of control your breathing and get yourself out of danger before you start succumbing to the early and then latter um, effects of, of hypothermia. And so that is, is a big issue in areas where the water's really cold or where you've got dangerous rocky coastlines and you might not recognize that these waves are much bigger than what you're used to maybe in Destern, Florida or on the, on the Gulf Coast. And so what we really wanted to do is kind of teach or embed three things, uh, a philosophy, a mindset, and then a call to action. And I think talking about all these different things, because I've spent years studying it, um, you know weather better than I ever will, but how do we distill the core elements of what we know for safety to others? And so we really kind of said, well, we need to teach a respect for the ocean, which is it changes day to day. Tidal currents change beaches substantially just in a six-hour window, for the most part, on the Mid-Atlantic. And when you're looking at strong storms reshaping the beaches over the course of the winter, when you're looking at beach replenishments reshaping beaches over the course of the spring, getting ready for summer season and stuff, that really don't assume that because you've been to one beach, they're all going to be the same. The currents are going to be the same. The rip currents are going to be the same. And just respect that water and find local sources to go, hey, this is a danger right here, right now. Talking with Bruckner Chase and really glad that we were able to catch up because I know we had <coughs> yeah. wanted to talk with you a few months ago or so. 
and uh, weren't able to work it out. So it's something that I've been really excited about. I'm going to give you a little more of Bruckner's background. Uh, he's completed triathlons, an ultra-distance triathlon, has been a professional triathlete for several years, ran Vermont 100-miler and two other 50-milers, and was the ninth, ninth, get this, ninth known person to swim across Lake Tahoe. Uh, there are many other things that uh, I could talk about with those level of accomplishments, and I certainly will. I want to shift focus to your Ocean Positive Foundation, the Bruckner Chase mm -hmm. Ocean Positive Foundation. Uh, what compelled you to go in that direction? It's a great question. It's really something that, that has changed my life. I used to work in the professional uh, private sector uh, in brand development and in the retail world. And several years ago, my passion for endurance that you referenced, getting out and doing these extreme things, but being immersed in the environment, um, I did some swims with NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program, which is the section of NOAA that overlooks marine protected areas, our national parks underwater. And I did a swim in Monterey Bay, which is one of the larger national marine sanctuaries, and was really kind of taking my experience in the water to connect it to others, going, these are amazing places that we need to respect and then preserve. And National Marine Sanctuary said, hey, we'd love for you to go down to American Samoa, uh, a U.S. territory that's very remote. Uh, it's a five-hour flight south and west of Hawaii. And so I went down to American Samoa to do a swim between a couple of the islands there and also to work with the local villages and the Department of Public Safety on their whole coastal safety narrative. You know, here's a, <clears throat> a community that's lived on that island for 3,000 years, but there was a growing concern with an increasing number of drownings each year and kind of a disconnect to how to be safe in these waters that had served this community for, for thousands of years. And what started out as a 10-day trip to American Samoa, um, at the end of that, there was a request from the government to look at developing an ongoing program to support the community around coastal safety and empowering people to be stronger, more confident in the water uh, so they could protect themselves, protect family and protect others, you know, visitors that might be coming off of a cruise ship. And the Ocean Positive Foundation was formed in response to those requests from the government of American Samoa. And we were really fortunate that had an incredible relationship with the government and began roughly three years of work working under a Department of Commerce Community Services block grant uh, that had us in the schools teaching swimming skills and, and coastal conservation to the high school students, working with the Department of Public Safety, going into the villages and working with the villagers and looking at risks in front of that village and then how to address those risks. So I, you know, originally was focused a lot on the conservation side of it and then got pulled into how do we let everyone experience the ocean from a conservation standpoint? And then if we want them to experience the ocean, we need to make sure that they can do it safely, that generationally they have positive experiences and sustainable experiences every time they go. And that's, that's kind of how it started. And it's been quite a whirlwind over the last 11 years since then. And I want to talk about some of that whirlwind when we come back from the break. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Bruckner Chase, whose impressive resume and impressive contributions to society just are amazing. And someone that I've wanted to talk to on this podcast for some time, I want to give you a few more. I mean, he's got so many things that are just impressive that I'm trying to sprinkle them in throughout the podcast here. Uh, but in, in your list of accomplishments, uh, my producers noted there was a noticeable shift in the 2010s. The focus turned to surf life-saving sports. You won the Kulangata Gold Surf Life-Saving Ironman Championships in Australia three years in a row, 14 to 16. And you were a two-time Life-Saving World Championship athlete and a global ambassador to the Life-Saving World Championship in 2018. And you just talked a little bit about why your focus shifted. I want to read something, and I want to let you react to it. Okay. It's your mission statement. It says, to positively impact how we feel, think, and act towards our oceans and communities. Tell us more about your, most people don't have a mission statement, but tell us about yours. You know, it's it's funny because I felt so called to do this work. You know, there's a a phrase in, in Samoan, fa'a Samoa, which is a Samoan way, which refers to the way of protecting the island, the ocean, and the community, and the village. I mean, being part of this, this structure of building for something more in future generations. And so when we started the foundation, we needed to encapsulate what we wanted to do in something that really captured everything that, that kind of brought it alive to me. And so... Every one of those words is very specific. And one of the things I want to really highlight is we want to positively impact because at first we're thinking, well, we want to change. And I'm like, no, because we don't necessarily want to change. Like, I don't want to change someone who's already kind of in our world. We want to positively impact it. And what we found was if you want to get someone to dig their heels in, tell them you want to change them. But if we're trying to positively impact a, a, a wide range of behaviors that we think are going to help, you know, family, friends, community, our oceans, um, that's why we settled on. We want to take the best of what everyone's doing and keep reinforcing it, make it sustainable and continue to empower that. So we also realized that it wasn't just how we feel, think and act about our oceans it's a community connection to our waters, to our weather, to our natural environment, which is why it's not just ocean, it's a social impact as well. Because sustainable conservation or environmental impact really needs to acknowledge that there's a, an important social component to that. We need to come together on this. And one of the caveats to our mission statement is um, we want to really kind of give people the passion to care, the strength to act, and the vision to inspire. 
passion, strength, and vision is part of it. So wherever you are, we want to meet you there and help you do even more than, than you thought possible. Well, really, thank you for this. Thank you for this effort. Uh, you know, I want to circle back now to some of the conversation we, that we started the conversation with. <clears throat> we're getting into the warm season. Mm-hmm. We're getting into the time of year where people go to beaches and they vacation and so forth. Uh, let me just read some statistics here. In the last 10 years, on average, rip currents are the deadliest weather event behind heat and floods. By the way, I think that probably would surprise some people because so many people think that tornadoes and hurricanes and lightning are the deadliest aspects of weather. But I just read you uh, that rip currents, heat, and floods are. Uh, from 2014 to 2021, the number of rip current deaths continue to rise each year. Uh, and you've also talked about some other aspects of coastal dangers as well, uh, sneaker waves and so forth. Are there myths? Because I hear people, ah, I'm, a, I'm a strong swimmer. I'll be okay. I'll, I'm, I'm not worried about these types of things. Talk to us about that perspective and any other myths that you hear when people think about these coastal dangers. Yeah, and I think that it's it's really important that, you know, there are so many things in the ocean. And I I also work on specific cases where people get into trouble and, and there's a fatal drowning. And so I get to see a lot of the information about it that's not necessarily in the newspaper and, and really kind of look into what happens. And, you know, sometimes people might get caught in a rip current, but then they get pulled out into stuff that's beyond their ability as a swimmer. And so often people go, well, it should be common sense to do this, or it should be common sense that this will happen if you get hit by a wave. And there is a, a flaw in that reasoning as a, as a sweeping generalization that, that common sense requires a shared common experience. That if someone has never been to the ocean or seen tides or waves before or experienced being hit by a wave, it wouldn't be common sense to them to know, wow, that's really pretty extreme. One of the things that we do here is we run a, an ocean training program for adult masters swimmers, you know, triathletes. These are people that, that have done Ironman triathlons, that are pool swimmers, that are accomplished swimmers. And without fail, you know, I'll see a lot of people go out into the ocean for the first time and forget everything that they've learned in their pool training because it is so vast, it is so big, and they just don't, they're not prepared for it. And so really, how do we kind of communicate this is what it's going to be like in a context that someone would understand? I I did a, a presentation at the American Meteorological Society last year, and I said, you know, I had a a graphic. I'm really big on photos rather than words. I said, uh, getting hit by a three-foot wave is like being hit by an NFL lineman. And while not everyone's had the experience of being hit by a three-foot wave, we can visualize how hard a hit by an NFL lineman might be. Especially the one these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Especially from from American Samoa. Um, So I think that really kind of finding creative ways, and I've been really lucky to be working with the Weather Channel on this, how do we take what's going on in the near coast or the coastal environment and translate it into something that someone understands? Because it's really hard to read distances across the water. You're used to looking down the street and you know that a street sign is about this tall, a car is about this tall. So we have a reference point to judge distance. 
without fail, if you don't have a lot of experience on the water, judging distances and reading the water and the conditions is really tough. And I, you know, like you've referred to, I have done some stuff in places that is, is pretty extreme. Um, I've had sharks come up underneath me during long swims in Hawaii. I've had orcas swim past in a swim in Alaska. I've been stung by jellyfish for hours on end in Monterey Bay. I've been stuck out in the fog that popped up uh, when I was less than a quarter mile offshore and have to calm myself down and really go, okay, well, I need to navigate back to the beach, but I've got like 20 yards of visibility. So there's so many things that can go wrong that can happen. And a lot of it's very specific. So I think that, you know, we talk about the speed of a rip current and really going, well, there's a lot of swimmers in the world now. And so if we say, OK, well, a rip current might move at three miles an hour. But we say, well, that's the equivalent of swimming 100 yards in, say, a minute and 30 seconds. So if someone's training for their first triathlon, they're like, wow, I can't swim that fast in a pool and you're talking open water. So I think what we're trying to do as we communicate all this stuff is find ways to put it in context for the audience that we might be talking to. Because I will tell you, I train ocean lifeguards. I'm on a beach patrol here in South Jersey. There are a lot of, of new lifeguards that might have a hard time recognizing a rip current or might have a hard time recognizing other dangerous things in the ocean until they build up years of experience of recognizing it. So it's not really realistic to think that someone who visits the beach once a week, you know, one week out of every year is going to kind of grasp all that. And, you know, when we say, you know, you need to swim out of the rip, I, 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 I've got this great video I love showing saying, you know, how many people know how to swim? And I have everyone in the room raise their hand, go, I can. And then I show a photo of me swimming on the backside of Aonu'u in American Samoa in six-foot surf, about half a mile offshore, white caps, the boats going up and down. And I show that video and I go, okay, now how many of you know how to swim in that? And like no hands go up. So even saying, do you know how to swim, has context. Do you know how to swim when you walk down the ladder into the pool and you need to swim across the pool? Or do you know how to swim when you fall off of a cliff and the next closest beach is a half a mile away, or you need to float on your back for 30 minutes because that's how long it's going to take Coast Guard or Marine Rescue to get to you. So I think really kind of looking at that. And the other thing, too, is you and I have talked a lot about fatalities. And more than fatalities, there was a study done in Ontario by Life Saving Society Canada that for every one, every one fatal drowning, there was a 4x number of non-fatal drownings that still required a hospital visit or a hospitalization. So now, if you think about that, if there are 80 drownings, multiply that by five, that's how many people had to go to the hospital. Then if you look at USLA's data on the number of rescues, now those rescues, they don't put them on a scale of one to 10, but some of those rescues could be so scary and so intense for family members, for children, for bystanders, for the rescuers themselves, they're going to have a real traumatic impact on that individual that can transfer for generations. So it's not just the fatalities. It's every time there's a rescue, there's a chance for something to go very, very wrong. And non-fatal could be a spinal cord injury that changes your life forever or other complications from non-fatal incidences 
um, that could profoundly impact someone's life. And you talked about working with so many people, including the Weather Channel. When we come back from this final break, I want to talk about a program you're working with NOAA on after the commercial break. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Bruckner Chase in our new video podcast format. And I'll, I'll stop saying that at some point, but it's the first couple of recordings in that format. And so we're all getting used to it. So thank you all for bearing with us as we work out any little glitches, audio and video along the way. But the information still Weather Geeks, and we're geeking out as usual with Bruckner. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about is you, you're partner with Noah on a new video series. Tell us how that came about and what, what's the intent? <clears throat> Thanks. And I had started with Noah, I think I referenced earlier, working with National Marine Sanctuary. So really in the conservation area of marine protected areas and how do we connect people to these amazing marine aquatic parks that Noah oversees and how do we get people to feel connected to them? And I did that much of my early career with NOAA and then began saying, okay, well, if we're going to connect people to these places, how do we make sure they do it safely? And so a few years ago, National Weather Service came to me and said, would you be willing to work with us on the next step beyond the Rip Current Survival Guide? And <clears throat> long conversations over a year of development, really looking at, we want to talk about the other 50 plus percent of things that impact people when they go to the beach. And what we wanted to do was take a geographic and demographic approach to that. So a very social science informed approach to coastal safety. And so a lot of talking with the weather forecasting offices in certain areas to go, what are the big hazards you're trying to communicate there? And so we then developed a list of hazards, but also a remedy of what could you do right now to mitigate that risk. So we went with a film crew from NOAA to the East Coast, Northern California, Southern California, Hawaii, and American Samoa to film. Because if we're going to speak to people, we want them to see something that looks familiar to them. It's like, that's where I go, that's where I've been, or that's where I live, and I can identify with that. But we also knew we can't just tell people, these are all the dangers, but what do I do? And so we settled on three things, a philosophy, a mindset, and action. Philosophy, respect the ocean, which also played back to my conservation days of respect this amazing place that we get to go and play, but also respect how powerful and strong it can be as well. Mindset, situational awareness, it changes in minutes. I guard the beaches and winds can change from the time I go to lunch to come back and completely change the experience that someone would have in the water. Tides change every six hours, roughly. So situational awareness of what's going on around me, pop-up lightning storms coming up, another danger on the coast that's very much driven by the weather. And then finally, the action. <clears throat> and what we had seen is a lot of what we call drowning for love, second victim drownings, where someone's in trouble 
and someone, parent, friend, loved one, goes into the water to save them. And then often we end up with a tragic second drowning, like happened in Florida just two weeks ago, or multi-victims, which is a real demand on the lifesavers responding because they don't know where everyone is and how they're doing. So we did the series to let people know, respect the ocean. There's this in the Pacific Northwest. There's this in Southern California. There's this in American Samoa. Stay aware, which also means look for lifeguard stands. Ideally, safest place is a lifeguard stand. Now, yeah. are these the wave? I know there are these wave safe awareness zones that that have been talked about in the <clears> videos. <throat> is this what you're referring to in these different geographies? Well, I think that we talk about beach zones being, you know, really as you walk towards the beach, certain zones, the safe zone where you're above the waves and and in safe a safe area. The awareness zone where lifeguard stands are, where you're kind of looking, and then the impact zone where you're actually in there. So wave safe zones are really kind of the the geographic areas that we're addressing with each wave safe series. So if you go to Noah's, if you go to Noah Wave Safe, you'll see I think six different films for different areas of the country, all with the common theme, but the specific dangers or risks in that area and then addressing those. So it's a very information-heavy series, but they're very specific for this zone of the country, Pacific Northwest, Southern California, East Coast. I see. Uh, so that's kind of how it's the social science part of, of the zoning. And, you know, the action was the take 10, you know, this emotional pause to prevent this second victim drowning. Because even a lifeguard, even if I'm sitting on the stand, if I see someone in trouble, I don't just run out. I stop, I blow a whistle, I alert the other stands, I grab a rescue can, and then I go out. All of that in, in five or 10 seconds. And I think that's what we wanna do is we want to prevent the second victim drowning and give people the tools, knowing that if your loved one is out there in the water and no one else is around, they're going to go out, but look for a lifeguard first, look for something else so that that's not the first choice. And we want you to live to be the hero, you know, protect yourself first. Same thing that they teach you in CPR training. You always look at the situation first. Is it safe? Now I go and try to save this person. I want to use this last question because you're an expert in this area and you're the type of person that could could get called or maybe has been called to testify before Congress or decision makers, people that can change lives with the decisions and policy that they make. Um, how, what would you say to a group of Congress persons, if you were called and sort of immediate need now to make uh, safer conditions in coastal and surf zones? I think that you know, I, I do work on the legal side of some of this and some of the policy stuff. If you've worked with NOAA, you know, you're always looking at stuff that's in the public sector and may impact public policy. And I think what really strikes me is uh, working with municipalities in the U.S. and abroad, there's always going to be a resource question. Even right now, we're having a hard time finding enough guards to fill the rosters the way we have traditionally guarded the beaches in the past. And that's a challenge. If there's fewer lifeguards or we're having to go deeper down in the pool, we're having to train those lifeguards up. And I think if I were sitting down with members of Congress, before I started doing this, I worked in private sector in retail and brand development. And we were always trying to, we're selling something in retail. You know, you want someone to go, 
I want this. I'm buying this. And this, what we're selling is we want you to buy your life. We want you to buy into this is how I protect myself. This is how I have a really positive experience on the beach. Nothing ruins a vacation more than having to be rescued on the first day because you weren't prepared for something you found. And I think that really encouraging people to get really good data about what's going on in our coastal environments, take it, and NOAA is doing this a lot more with the social science influence to the hard science of oceanography and what's going on in the coastal environment is, how do we engage people and how do we positively impact their behavior? And I think with the congressional leaders, really making sure we're capturing good data, recognizing that money and resources and putting guards on the beach is always going to be a challenge. Um, but I've been encouraged that some states are mandating informational signage. Now we have the ability and our wave safe posters use QR codes so we can connect people to even more information than what's on a sign. But really trying to raise everyone's blue IQ rather than just saying, just be aware of this, raising their overall awareness of this is what is going on in the ocean. I work in, um, I'm a wilderness first responder, and so we look at how do we get people safe visiting a national park. And a lot of what they're doing is, you know, we know the impact of search and rescue. If someone gets lost, you know, the resources that go to finding them and, and recovering them, and really looking at what they call now PSAR, P-S-A-R, so preventative search and rescue. So can we focus on information that is going to stop someone from ending up in that dangerous situation because you will absolutely survive 100% of the rip currents that you never get into in the first place. And so if we raise that blue IQ and that level of awareness and do that both from activation at the individual and community level, but also look at federal and state ways to collect good information and really look at, are we having the impact? You know, if we want to put a video out and we want to get a lot of people to watch it, hey, you and I should lead with a kitten at the start of the video because everyone loves kitten videos. <laughs> but if we want to really change the behavior, we need to really look at how are they connecting to the content and what are they what are they going to leave with after listening to you and I talk for 30 minutes? And well, I mean, my blue, shaped it? Yeah. my blue IQ has gone up. I have to admit there are things yeah. that you've taught me just today. And I'm certain that our, our viewers and listeners have, have as well. We, we really have to end it there. But I, I could talk to you for another 30 minutes. <laughs> Certainly we could have you on again, and I'm sure we will. But before we get out of here, are, are there any mm -hmm. places you want to make people aware of on social media or on the Internet? I really would. I'm, I'm really excited to be working with the Weather Channel right now. I've been doing a lot more kind of drop-ins in their morning shows, and we're talking about specific stuff. And so, you know, the Weather Channel, I think we're really kind of expanding the narrative, looking at the impact of weather on the coastal environment and what you need to do to be prepared. Um, people can go to bcoceanpositive.org and find out more about what we're doing around the Wave Safe series. If you Google NOAA Wave Safe, you will land on uh, the public domain Wave Safe series that's available for download. Teachers can use, communities can use. I would encourage them to maybe share and show some of those videos at their community centers. But BC Ocean Positive, we're putting posters out about the Wave Safe series that are made from recycled ocean-bound plastics. So we're protecting our oceans and our communities at the same time. Um, but have them reach out to me, either individuals wanting to learn more or agencies or 
private sector people that want to get involved in this and help us kind of spread the word and raise the blue IQ. Really amazing information and hopefully uh, some, some things that people can utilize as we get into this warm season and more active yeah. season around the water. Now, I've got to get out of here. But before I do, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Corey Davis. Corey has taken his passion for weather and built a career out of it as the assistant state climatologist for the state of North Carolina. He takes this passion for weather and skills and communications to help North Carolinians have a better understanding of their weather and climate risk. If you know someone that would be a deserving candidate for our Geek of the Week, please visit our social media pages. Bruckner, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been great to be here. And remember, the safest beach is the one in front of the lifeguard stand. And that's where we'll end it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll geek out next time on Weather Geeks. Mm-hmm.